0: This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Troy Kitsch. D-Day, codenamed Operation Neptune, was the largest seaborne invasion, not only in World War II, but in history. It was a massive, complex, amphibious landing along the Normandy coast of France that began on June 6, 1944. Within 10 days, there were half a million troops ashore, and within three weeks, there were two million All told, D-Day marked the start of the liberation of German-occupied France and later Western Europe and laid the foundations of the Allied victory on the Western Front. But what most people don't know is that ocean tides played a crucial role in the initial phase of the invasion. Joining us by phone today to tell us the story of D-Day from the perspective of the science of tides and tide predictions, is Greg Dussek. Greg is a physical oceanographer and senior scientist at the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, or COOPs. That's the Tides and Currents Office of the National Ocean Service. Greg, what sort of conditions were the Allies looking for as they planned the invasion of Normandy?
1: So when the Allies were planning an amphibious assault. So they were gonna cross the English Channel to the, the French coastline near Normandy. Because they were going over the ocean they really needed good weather so they needed to find a time where the waves were going to be minimal and the winds were going to be minimal and obviously that's something they really can't plan ahead of time but they knew that in the summer months you were more likely to have good weather and so they wanted to plan a time in the summer for the assault they also wanted to have a time period where you had a full moon or close to a full moon the night before the assault and the reason for that was you know they were going to have airborne infantry send behind enemy lines the night before and to do that, you know, you needed some sort of light for them to be able to figure out where they're going. So they wanted a close to a full moon the night before. And then lastly, they were looking for a time with low tide shortly after dawn. And the reason that they needed it shortly after dawn was because they needed a couple hours of time for the amphibious assault groups to travel across the English Channel in darkness, but then enable the naval bombardment to have daylight to be able to target initial areas of interest to bombard before the amphibious assault began. Those criteria, you know, didn't have a lot of times to work with. And June 5th, 6th, and 7th of 1944 were the three days that were identified.
0: That is a lot of environmental factors to have all fall in place. That last part, looking for a time with low tide shortly after dawn, is where we get to the science of predicting the tide for a particular location. Can you tell us a bit about the basics of what tides are and how people predicted tides in the past leading up to World War II?
1: Tide predictions enable us to tell when is high and low tide and what time is high and low tide going to occur at different coastal locations. And the tide is related to the position of the sun and the moon relative to Earth. And so going back even into the mid-1700s, people understood that When you had high tide every day and how high the tide was relates to, uh, in particular, the phase of the moon. And so even in the mid-1700s in colonial America, there were tide predictions of the timing of the tides at various harbors. They didn't do a great job. They weren't terribly accurate, but they did provide some information which would be useful to mariners and to citizens. But it wasn't really until the late 1800s that a few folks, uh, Sir William Thompson, who later became known as Lord Kelvin, in England, and then William Farrell of the US, who was at the US Coast Survey, which later became actually NOAA much later in time, they were the kind of the first ones to figure out that if we go and collect observations, so we went and measure, you know, go measure the water level for a month at a time at a certain location, you could then figure out what frequencies make up the tide, what are known as tidal constituents. And if you knew those tidal constituents at a particular location, then you could use that information to generate tide predictions or very specific water levels and times of the tide at a certain location even months or years into the future.
0: So how were tide predictions calculated once this was figured out in the late 1800s?
1: Understanding that there were these specific frequencies that related to the tides, these tidal constituents, you could recreate those mechanically. So you could have these different gears and pulleys represent specific frequencies, and then use what's known as a tide machine to basically you put in the constituents and that tide machine would spit out a tidal curve, telling you exactly the times and water levels associated with certain tidal constituents. Some of the first tide machines were created in the late 1800s. And in the US, really kind of the best tide machine that was really ever created uh, was finished in about 1912. And in fact, if you ever visit NOAA, you can find it right in one of our buildings. We still have it there today, but it was called Old Brass Brains. And it was this big metal machine. It's about 11 feet long, about as tall as a person. And people would operate that all the time, generating tide predictions from tidal constituents. And you could generate those predictions anywhere in the world, as long as you had the information about the constituents. And the big thing with this machine is that it's, you know, this used to be a process that was done by hand. And so there was a quote in in a New York Times article when the machine was first put out where they say, you know, the machine turns out in 10 to 15 hours the work that would keep a mere human calculator busy for six months. <laughs> so, you know, we used to have human calculators uh, and it would take about six months for them to do, you know, one set of time predictions and now we could do it in maybe a day or so.
0: I'm still not clear on the idea of tidal constituents.
1: So tidal constituents are specific frequencies that represent the position of the moon and the sun relative to the earth and how that influences water level. And so you can calculate the tide with, you know, not too many tidal constituents, maybe 20 or 30. Uh, The tide machines of the time could do it, uh, it could solve about 37 tidal constituents, which is usually more than enough to get a really accurate prediction, but there are uh, several hundred known constituents Um, And then we can solve for today if needed.
0: How many of these mechanical tide machines did the Allies have during the war?
1: There were a number of these tide machines by the time World War II rolled around. Uh, We had one in the United States. There were two in the United Kingdom. Pretty much every maritime nation at that point had some sort of tide machine to enable them to generate tide predictions. But because we only had three really primary machines within the uh, Allied nations, It was really important to keep them safe. So in the UK, for instance, they had these two machines, which they had in two different locations because they were really afraid of the Germans figuring out where the machines were and then firebombing them to destroy them because they would have been a high value target. So the location was a closely held secret and they really tried to keep them hidden. If They lost both of them. That could be a huge implication on the war effort. So it was really important to keep the machines safe.
0: And this leads us back to planning for the D-Day invasion. What were some of the challenges of predicting the tides along the Normandy coast where the Allies planned to land?
1: So the tide range around the Normandy beaches was 20 feet. Because you have this really large tidal range, a beach that you have to traverse is going to be wildly different, depending on if you're at low tide or if you're at high tide. Then at low tide, you might have two, 300 yards more of beach to cover during an amphibious assault than high tide. So because of that, You know, you'd really want to minimize your exposure. Uh, The other important part about the tide range is that the water level is changing very rapidly. So you could be gaining or losing a foot of water almost every 15 minutes. On top of that, the Normandy coastline is kind of complex. And that influenced the tides fairly substantially as you go along the coast. And so the Allies had five locations they wanted to land at. Utah and Sword were the two furthest apart. They were about 100 kilometers apart. The tide could vary by more than an hour between those locations. And so knowing the precise time of low tide was going to be really important.
0: So how did the Allies get the information they needed to do their calculations for all of these extreme tide conditions?
1: At this time in history, there was tidal information at lots of the kind of major coastal cities. And so there were tide constituents generated from water level observations at nearby cities, uh, Cherbourg to the west and Le Havre to the east. But now both of these locations were maybe 100 kilometers or so away from the landing beaches. And so the predictions that you generated at those locations would probably not be very accurate for where the landings were going to occur. And so they had uh, in the tide tables at the time, there were some information closer to the landing zones but it wasn't nearly as detailed. And there was even a note in the tide tables that said, these predictions may not be accurate. <laughs> so, so they really didn't have much to go on for the exact landing locations. Uh, apparently, the Allies actually sent in some special forces, uh, night reconnaissance ahead of the attack to the beaches to look at the bathymetry, the shape of the bottom, the type of sand that was there, and even to collect a little bit of information about the tides which could then support calculating new predictions for those specific landing zones.
0: And why was it so important to stage the invasion at low tide?
1: They knew they wanted to land at low tide so that they could send their initial forces to clear out the number of objects on the beach. But if you can imagine if they got the tide just a little bit wrong, say they were off by 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and they landed just before low tide. Well, because of the tide range, water's dropping by about a foot every 15 minutes right before low tide and so your amphibious craft would have arrived unloaded the troops the tide would have dropped and all the craft would have been stuck on the beach and then you know you'd be gumming up the whole operation you wouldn't be able to have reinforcements come in and it would have been a disaster and so they needed to arrive just after low tide so that water levels are rising And it would enable their, their craft to drop the troops off and then get back out of the way for the next round of troops to arrive.
0: So at the time, I know that the German forces knew that the Allies would likely try an invasion of the French coast from across the English Channel. Can you talk about how the Germans were planning for this possibility?
1: The Germans and General Rommel were really expecting the Allies to attack at high tide because at low tide there would be maybe two, three hundred yards of beach that the amphibious forces would have to traverse, leaving them exposed for an extended period of time. And so because of that, Rommel had all of these obstacles placed along the beach, uh, millions of obstacles along the French and Belgian coastlines. And so they were convinced that an attack would happen at high tide. Now, the Allies saw these obstacles and decided that a high tide attack wouldn't be possible, and that instead they would have to plan their attack at low tide, giving their, their initial troops a chance to move obstacles out of the way, blow up obstacles, and clear a path for kind of the heavy infantry and tanks and things like that, that would follow the initial attack.
0: You said that all of the conditions that needed to fall in place, the moon, the weather, the tides, meant that the small window between the 5th and 7th of June were the best dates for the Allies to launch the invasion. How did the Allies settle on June 6th?
1: On June 4th, the weather was going to be too bad, so they didn't attack. They waited to June 6th. The weather was still not great, and it was very questionable, but Eisenhower made the decision to attack because he was worried that if it failed here, they'd have to wait at least two weeks, maybe a month or more, to go forward with the assault, and then it could have been figured out. Um, and They didn't want to wait that long because they were losing lives like crazy. Even though the weather was rough getting across the channel, it actually worked in our favor because Rommel, because the weather wasn't any good and because it was low tide – at first light. And he was anticipating a high tide assault. He was actually not even in Berlin. He was visiting his wife for her birthday somewhere else. And so wasn't prepared even for the assault at all. So we we actually caught them off guard by choosing to attack that day.
0: Well, the invasion, of course, succeeded. So among all the factors that led to the success, I guess that means that the Allies got the tide predictions right for the Normandy coast on June 6, 1944, right?
1: So later on, um, people went back and using computers and using hydrodynamic models, re-ran a simulation to look at how accurate the predictions were, you know, around the Normandy coastline for the assault and found them to be really quite accurate, you know, using a mechanical machine and data collected from a few hours in a midget submarine or something was almost as accurate as we can determine today. I would say anecdotally, in our office, we've looked at a lot of historic predictions going back to the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and compared them to what we can find today with modern instruments and, and modern computers and are always amazed at just how accurate you know, what people were able to figure out with really minimal amounts of information and technology and could get pretty darn close to to what we can measure today with all the technology we have.
0: Okay, from your perspective as an oceanographer at NOAA's Tides and Currents office, what's your takeaway from the D-Day invasion?
1: One of the important things to think about with this is that the tides really were one of the pivotal roles with one of the most important days of human history. And I think it shows just how important it is to really understand our natural environment and to be able to make predictions about the natural environment seem simple in terms of just the rise and fall of the water level due to the tides. It's actually quite complex. It could take a lot of work to figure out and can be important to understand for a whole range of reasons.
0: Oh, it's truly a remarkable story. I'm curious how you discovered the historical role of tide predictions for the invasion of Normandy.
1: Our former chief scientist of National Ocean Service, Bruce Parker, was really on the forefront of tide prediction and tide analysis when he was here at NOAA and did a lot of research into tide history. He wrote a book a number of years ago, The Power of the Sea, uh, where he goes into a, a lot of the story and some other interesting historical facts about the tide and about the ocean. He's been a great source for this kind of historical research.
0: I imagine tide prediction in the 21st century has come quite a long way from the old brass brains machine the U.S. used back in the day.
1: Today, we have the benefit of having a lot more data, you know, instead of maybe collecting information about the water level a couple times a day or for like a few days or for a few months, you know, we have instruments that measure water level every six minutes for years and years. And so we can take that time series and run it in a computer and take four, five, six years of data or more, run it through a computer and figure out very precisely what the tidal constituents are for a particular location and then generate tide predictions from those constituents, again, every six minutes at a very high level of accuracy going out years into the future. And from a time standpoint, you know, we can do that in a matter of minutes. Whereas before, you know, even after the tide machine was created, it was taking people days to generate these predictions. So we've we've advanced quite a bit.
0: What are some of the reasons that we need such detailed information about water levels today?
1: So the importance of tides and currents for NOAA and for the nation really comes down to a couple of things one is safe and efficient marine navigation so if you're pulling in a, a large commercial vessel or navy warship you need to know precisely when low and high tide are going to be and how high it's going to be so that you know you're not going to run aground or run into a bridge or things like that on top of that tide predictions are really important to things like high tide flooding and so you know one of the benefits of being able to predict the tide really well means that we can figure out what days you're likely to see flooding in certain locations. And so it's really important for public safety, for providing awareness regarding potential hazards. And so tide predictions is something we know how to do really well, uh, but it remains something really important for a wide range of uses.
0: Thanks, Greg, for joining us today. That was Greg Dusek, a physical oceanographer and senior scientist at the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, or COOPs, the Tides and Currents Office of the National Ocean Service. And that's all for this episode. If you like what you hear, please head to iTunes and leave us a rating. It'll really help more people find our show. And head to oceanservice.noaa.gov or check your podcast app for our show notes for links. And be sure to subscribe to the NOAA Ocean Podcast so you don't miss any episodes.